Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, congratulations on season two. And congratulations to you too, Eric. It's been an amazing year. Well, tell the folks who's joining us to kick off our second year of shows. We have a typically stellar lineup. Alifair Burt tells us how she plans to handle the next invitation she gets from you and I. I now know that if I see you coming to my door, <laughs> get the water hose out <laughs> and chase you away before you drag me into the middle of your murder scheme. And author Nick Petrie congratulates us on our first year of writer types. To me, it seems like an utter freak aberration. And CJ Tudor tells us what method she used to prepare for her interview. By getting drunk, probably. I mean, this, this, is, this is generally my go-to. <laughs> All that, plus we talk with author Frank Bill. We hear from some authors with debut novels in 2018 and more. But first, Steve, have you read any good books lately? You know, Eric, I've been playing a lot of catch-up recently. I read an interesting novel by Joe Perry called Dead is Better. I finally got around to reading Bill Beverly's excellent Dodgers. And in preparation for our conversation with Frank Bill today, I read Donnybrook, which was just fantastic. And now I'm really looking forward to the movie coming out. Looking forward, I'm currently reading May by Marietta Miles, and I'm just loving it. How about you? Yeah, uh, I got a chance to read Steph Post's new book, Walk in the Fire, which is a follow-up to Lightwood, which we raved about last year and ended up on our favorites of the year list from some of our reviewers. And Steph Post, is she's done it again. I tell you, she's three for three in the novels of hers that I've read. And I really love her writing. And I think she she does a great blend of action and violence, but with real heart and just characters that you really relate to and, and can kind of root for, even though they're kind of playing on the on the wrong side of the fence as far as the law is concerned. But uh, Walking the Fire by Steph Post, it's really great stuff. Well, the, the buzz on that book has been tremendous. I'm really excited to read it as well. Our first guest of 2018 is Nick Petrie. Now, he is the author of the award-winning series starring Peter Ash, uh, which started with The Drifter and then Burning Bright and the brand new novel Light It Up. We caught up with Nick from his home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the midst of a brutal cold snap. And we can really relate because here in Los Angeles, it got down to the low 60s last week, and it was not pretty. All right, Nick, I'm going to jump right in with the hard-hitting questions, okay? So I hope you're sitting down and you're ready for this, because this is a real interview, okay? Okay, I'm ready. All right. After The Drifter was set in your hometown of Milwaukee, you quickly moved the second book out to the West Coast, which Eric and I believe was a smart move, and we think it hints at you regret where you live. Is that correct? I have to say that on a day like today... With the wind chill about 10 below in Milwaukee, I really do regret where I live. My uh, state is trying to kill me right now. <laughs> do you feel like your state has motive? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I, I've always said nice things about Wisconsin until this last couple of weeks uh, when I'm, I'm starting to speak ill uh, of my home state. Well, our state was trying to burn us alive, so both our states are trying to kill us. <laughs> I think it's the new normal. I, you know, welcome to the world. <laughs> well, we want to say congratulations uh, on Light It Up. This is the third outing for uh, your character, Peter Ash. And it's really key to his character is his military service. 
And I know you did a lot of research with veterans. Uh, what are some of the most interesting things that you learned in, in talking to vets? There are a couple of components that I tried to build into Peter's character. And, and the, the thing that I don't know if it surprised me the most, but it certainly struck me the most, is that a lot of people that I had met joined the service to, to, to try to help, to be part of the solution. And, and these were folks who'd been in the military, you know, almost since right after 9-11, people who really had signed up at, almost as a direct response. When I was growing up, you joined the military to, to, to pay for college or to leave your small town. And I think those things are still true. But for me, the, the thing that really stuck with me was this idea of trying to be useful in the world and to, to, to really try to help solve a problem. Um, and that's a great character uh, quality for a hero, for sure. But, but I didn't invent it. It was something I saw in others first. Eric, that's kind of why you got into crime writing, right? <laughs> My whole thing was I kept having ideas for great crimes that I thought certainly would work. And absolutely, I would never get caught, but I uh, never actually had the uh, gumption to pull them off. So I figured I'd just write about them. Well, it's much better than prison. I have no interest in going to prison. Really? None? None. I would not be successful there. It's, I'm too pretty. <laughs> so, Nick, back to you. <laughs> Your first book, The Drifter, I mean, it won all of the awards everywhere. You were winning awards that were not even for crime fiction or even for books. <laughs> I was nominated for some awards. I did win a couple. From our perspective, you're a huge winner. And what I want to know is, do you get a skewed perspective from that? Like your idea of writing books now is I, I write a book, I get showered with the awards, and then everybody's eagerly awaiting my next one. Is, is that your experience as a writer? What you forget is that I spent 25 years writing books that nobody read before The Drifter came out. So to me, it seems like an utter freak aberration. And I also think that the, the secret to, to being good at something is to never quite believe that you can do it. I don't know if it's an underdog mentality or just uh, an insecurity, maybe. But I don't ever want to be one of those guys who thinks that, you know, whatever comes out of his word processor is genius. My default is it sucks. Uh, and that, you know, gets me revising more, working harder. I actually really think that this whole concept of, of somebody being talented is way overrated. I think hard work is a much more valuable skill to try to do something good. In that spirit, do you have a pretty strict writing regimen? Do you sit down and say, I have to write X amount of words or I have to spend X amount of hours in front of my computer every day? I try to. Uh, it's a little bit of both. I'm, I'm now lucky enough to be writing full-time. But even before that, I, I when I was working full-time, I was writing at lunch. Uh, I wrote, I got up early to write in the morning. I learned very early that not to, not to carry a book with me because I'm inherently lazy and it's always more fun to read a book than to write one when you're tired and when you're, um, so, you know, my office really was my, my backpack. I worked in coffee shops and so, you know, for me, having that discipline is something that I've, I've worked at for a long time. And now I just sort of, I try to meditate a little bit to kind of clear my brain. And then I make a cup of coffee and I go to work. You know, I, I, I treat it like a nine to five job, six days a week. That's kind of my mode. So Peter Ash, he's been famously compared to uh, his contemporaries like Jack Reacher and uh, Jason Bourne. Be honest, Nick, could he kick their asses? 
I'm not sure anybody can kick Reacher's ass. Re Reacher's really a, a Superman, um, and it's it's one of his core appeals to me is is his kind of invulnerability. But Jason Bourne, I, I don't know, he's getting kind of old by now, isn't he? I just, <laughs> I just, I mean, how? When did he start? The '70s. <laughs> so you know, that's not a problem for Peter. So Peter could kick an old man's ass, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I think that's safe. I don't know about you, Eric, but I'm a little offended since I quote unquote started in the '70s. And um, I'm feeling like he was calling us old. Do you think that's the case? Oh, he could definitely <laughs> kick our ass. <laughs> the fictional character or Nick? What are you saying? Nick's going to kick our asses? Oh, no, both of them, yeah. Both of our asses? At the same time. <laughs> I knew we had this coming, but I didn't expect Only it to happen like this. Nick, Peter is a bit of a loner. Uh, do you think that that is an apt description for you as well? well I'm definitely an introvert. One of the benefits of my former profession, which is a, a freelance building inspector. So if you if you bought a house, you'd hire a guy like me to tell you what's wrong with it. But but one of the skills I had to learn was to meet strangers every day and to do it day in and day out. So I, I developed uh, the veneer of an extrovert. But I, man, there's there's not much I like better than the day alone at home. I, I love going out to, to talk with readers. I that to me, that's a really important part of my life as a writer. Is to is to go to bookstores and to talk or to go to libraries, but you know, for me to go four days hiking by myself is really what recharges my batteries. Well, here's a tip for you: start a podcast because then you can just do the whole thing from your own house, and you never have to really actually interact with anybody. Yeah, but you, you still have to talk and talk and talk. Yeah, but it's it's talking over the computer. It's not it's not real human interaction. It's perfect oh, for I people see. like us. I can turn you <laughs> off at any moment. <laughs> I, I need more real world life. I need to be out of my office more. I need to be off my computer more. Well, we can take a hint, Nick. So uh, we'll let you get off your computer and we'll let you go be alone <laughs> in, in, in what you clearly prefer. So I think this interview's over. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I think I think it's been over for a while, Eric. And frankly, I'm a little hurt. <laughs> Any Anytime you guys want to have this conversation, it's really not very painful because you're very far away. <laughs> That's the best way to keep us, Nick. You found our secret. <laughs> you know, Steve, we should let people know that in the first year of doing this podcast, you used to come down to my house and we would sit in the studio together and do this. But in true writerly introvert fashion, right now we're recording from our own homes way across town. So we don't actually have to interact with each other. I think, I think Nick would be proud. I have to let you know, Eric, that you're making the assumption I'm recording from my own home. I'm recording from a home in my neighborhood, but I just, I like to keep it loose. And also, <laughs> I felt like uh, having to get dressed every time I came down to your house was a bit of a burden. And, you know, the beauty of recording a podcast is maybe you're wearing pants and maybe you're not. I thought we were close enough that that was understood that that was optional. All right, you, you just crossed several lines. <laughs> Well, we tried not to cross any lines when talking with best-selling author Alifair Burke, who joins us next. And she's here to discuss her brand new novel, The Wife, which is hot off the presses. Alifair has really tapped into something with her latest with a timely story of sexual harassment and abuse and the innocent lives caught up in those accusations. You know, we should try to be uh, timely when we write our, our next books, Steve. Maybe, I don't know, a mystery novel about like Beanie Babies or... Or maybe, you know, maybe I'll finally finish my Saved by the Bell fan fiction. Well, I hope you don't get it out before I do my Cabbage Patch murders. 
So Alfred, congratulations on your new book, The Wife. Now, this is following up uh, on your previous book, The X, which I know they're not in a series, but it seems like you're you're backtracking through relationship phases. <laughs> so the, the next the next book is what, like the awkward office flirtation or what? Yeah, exactly. It's like I'm getting very lazy with my titles. I just look around and like, that person is a sister. The next book would be the sister. Yeah, they're, the books, um, they're standalones, but there's connections in weird ways. One of the characters kind of shows up and they're part of the same world, I guess. You've written about cities you've lived in, drawn from cases you've worked, and even used real names like McKenna Jordan <laughs> by the book. So, what are you saying? Well, what should we assume <laughs> about the wife then? <laughs> <laughs> the wife is completely fictional. So far, my husband has not been accused of sexual misconduct, and I don't. Um, I'm not carrying around little secrets of my own, or am I? Really. Um, <laughs> but the world is the world that she lives in is very much my world. I mean, she lives in my neighborhood in Greenwich Village. Her husband is an academic. They eat at the same restaurants I go to. The less scandalous parts of their marriage are certainly um, reminiscent of mine, I guess. Well, now your publisher sent along a, a list of talking points and potential questions to ask, but oh, I, I, I noticed that not on this list is to me the most obvious question, which was what did your husband think when he read it? Did he think you were trying to say something and send him some messages? <laughs> You assume my husband has read it. I think he's on page 150. He's really going to hear about this when he gets home from work. I was, I'm like, you're still not done? Like, I can't go giving interviews when my own husband hasn't finished the book. He's like, no one's going to ask you if I finished reading the book. So now I now I can tell. Our job is done here, Eric. Our job is done. There you go. Breaking up happy marriages. Is the next so book is called The Husband Who Didn't Read the Book. <laughs> Part of me is kind of like, maybe he doesn't want to read some of the thoughts that are in there about do wives and husbands really know each other and does each person have a secret side of them that the other doesn't see. I think about that when people read my work and they know me, it's inevitable that they are looking into it, it seems to me, that they're reading it. Whenever you read someone's work and you know them, you're kind of, you kind of hear their voice in it and that's kind of like, Whenever I write anything involving sex, I'm like, ah, my dad's going to read this. <laughs> Can I cut those pages out? Can I ask my publisher to print a separate copy of the book that is redacted? <laughs> Steve and I like to uh, ask advice of uh, authors such as yourself, and, and that would be the smart thing to do. But you are also a, a lawyer, so we're going to skip the writing advice and go right to the legal advice. Oh, God, Okay. So let's say Steve and I show up at your door and we confess to you under lawyer-client privilege that there's a body in the trunk of the car. What is your legal counsel? I now know that if I see you coming to my door, to get the water hose out and chase you away before you drag me into the middle of your murder scheme, um, I would, well, I can't tell you what I would say because then I'm violating attorney client privilege because you haven't actually secured me yet. He, Eric, uh, I, try, I tried to tell you he was going to get you on a technicality and you wouldn't listen. <laughs> Either way, we're going to prison. <laughs> You're all going to jail. Fictional prison. Fictional prison, Don't Eric. Talk to the cops. That's my advice to you. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Good tip. But speaking of uh, legal advice, you're also a law professor. Uh, do you think you'll ever teach writing? And if so, what would be your first lesson? I d I've never taught writing and I'm nervous about doing it because I think I'd be bad at it because to the extent I give people advice, it's just, hey, you should turn off the internet and write instead. And you should write every day and keep your butt in the chair. And I don't really know what to say other than that. Well, let, let's flip that really quick. What's either the best or worst writing advice that you've ever gotten? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's uh, the worst advice, but for people who were looking, they thought because my father is a writer, um, they were just convinced that like I had gotten some insider knowledge, like I had learned the secret of how to be James Lee Burke. And they're like, what writing advice have you gotten at the knee of your father? And I can honestly tell you the only thing he ever told me was hit the return carriage more often because people's eyes need a break and they like to see white space on the page. <laughs> 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 and the best advice I ever got was actually you have to think of yourself as being a writer because there's something audacious about writing a book. It's just a bold move to say, I am going to take all of this time and because I think I'm so great and I have such a great story to tell that it's worth this. It was actually an academic giving advice to other academics saying you have to think of yourself as a writer and treat yourself as such, which means making time for it, turning off the internet, explaining to your family, I'm about to go to the garage <laughs> while you feed the kids because what I'm doing is actual work. It's not a hobby. But you, I think you have to do that or it doesn't get done. If you, if you think of it as a hobby, it won't happen. I would agree with that. So uh, the wife, I mean, it really seems almost ripped from the headlines this year with the, the Me Too movement and sort of the, all this attention on sexual well, harassment. The headlines ripped from me. Aha. Well, <laughs> that's, that's my question is, I mean, we all know how long it takes a book to, to go through the whole process and for it finally to come out. It's not like you had this idea in late September and now the book is here. So how, how were you so prescient to know what the nation would be talking about? I started this book uh, two years ago. Oh, wow. I think. Yeah. You know, I don't think it took the current Me Too movement or the reckoning that everybody's calling it. It didn't take Harvey Weinstein uh, for us to know that there were beloved men, men who seemed nice, men who were good dads and husbands, who apparently behind closed doors have another side and turn into predators. It seems like the inevitable cycle is first you hear the news and there's a shock. It's, no, not him. He seems so nice. He is a dad who gives everybody jello pudding pops. Like, it's not possible. And then the second phase of it is the purience of it, of he did what? He touched her where? He carries around quaaludes, you know, those kinds of um, things. And then there's this betrayal of, I can't believe that I thought he was a nice guy. Someone must have known. How did he get away with this? Who was complicit? Who was... Um, emboldening him and eventually that blaming gaze seems to go to the wife and it seemed to me just as plausible that the wife would be least likely to know. I just started to think you know what would it be like to be one of these wives who finds out about the allegations of her, from her about her husband and part of the slow burn of the book I think um, of the wife is Angela Powell just every morning waking up wondering, you know, what's going to come out today? You know, what else don't I know? This is your 12th solo novel. How do you think your writing has evolved since your first book? 
I think when I first started, I believed that my greatest contribution to the genre was my knowledge of criminal law. I was a prosecutor. I had worked in a police precinct as a liaison to the police department for a couple of years. I knew the ins and outs of that world. And I think because I thought that was my strength, I relied on that a lot. It was my go-to move. <laughs> so when I look at my first novel, I realize there are whole pages where like, I'm geeking out on the world of law enforcement, um, both in terms of culture, but also the, the actual ins and outs of legal process. And I'm much less likely to do that now. I like to hang on to the culture piece of it. But if I find myself explaining why someone got a search warrant, I'm like, nope, <laughs> unless that's advancing plot or setting or character, I take it out. In part, that's because I've become more confident in the other parts of my storytelling, that I can carry a book without necessarily putting on my law professor hat. So if you had the chance to, to go back and revise that first novel, do you think you would? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be painful. I'm not sure how long the book would be. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a novella. Not to diss the book, but it would be a completely different rewrite, yeah. Now, I do want to talk about a, a character in The Wife that, I don't want to criticize it, but it maybe was a little underdeveloped, and that was the character of Eric. I mean, clearly, I appreciate the that I inspired you to write about this guy who's a, a very handsome, telegenic uh, TV host. I'm assuming that there was not more about him in the book because he's getting his own spinoff or his own standalone novel, is that? I had to stop and go, who's Eric? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking myself that all the time. <laughs> that wasn't his last name, there's other Eric's. It's not if I read your book and there was an Alifair, that would be fair to say, hey, what about Alifair? <laughs> So, so I've, I was wrong in assuming that the uh, handsome TV host was inspired. Okay, I get it. No, that's fine. <laughs> so, so moving on. My understanding is that uh, you're a big fan of 80s music, as, as are Eric and I. And I had actually written down a question about the English beat, but I decided to save it for later. <laughs> oh, Steve, you didn't. <laughs> I'm going to tell my good friend Dave Wakeling that you made that lame joke. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, Eric will actually put it at the top and the bottom of the interview. <laughs> Maybe we should put all scenes in our book where somebody looks at the mirror in the bathroom. We can have see how many English beat references we can... Um... That's a good title for a mystery. Ooh, that is not bad. See? You can have that one. I'll let you, I'll let you keep going. <laughs> You also co-write a series with Barry Higgins Clark. I, I just want to know, do you, do you ever see yourself getting to the point where you're bringing in one of the uh, young guns to co-write a series with you? Oh, wow. My, I, that just completely made my head spin. I'm like, that had never even dawned on me. I don't know what it would be like to be someone like Mary who has so many ideas that she's unable to um, write them by herself. You know, that... that is, is that Mary calling right now? She's got a new yeah, idea for a book. My good friend Mary Higgins Clark. <laughs> the other line. I'm sorry about. That. You guys edit it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, unless it's Dave Wakeling. If it's Dave Wakeling, then we want to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> to see who was really on the phone and to hear about Alifair's experience working with Mary Higgins Clark, you, you can find us on our Facebook page for an exclusive outtake. 
And of course, follow us on Twitter for links uh, to content and some of Steve's really lame jokes. Well, while we're on the topic of lame jokes, let's talk to our resident reviewers, the Malmans, because this conversation is absolutely full of them. We are here one year after starting this podcast with our fabulous reviewers, Kate Malman and Dan Malman. How are you doing this year in 2018? They're cold, Steve. I'll, I'll answer that for them. They are cold right now. <laughs> it's not warm in Minnesota. Let's just say that. I'm happy the sun's shining. That's a thing, but no, it's bitterly cold. I like to think that isn't the sun and really just a lamp that's hanging over your kitchen table. And you're so desperate for sunlight that you're like an iguana in a cage. <laughs> We're more like an iguana falling out of a tree in Florida. <laughs> that is more accurate. There is actually no better time than single digit temperatures to hunker down inside under the covers with a good book. So tell us guys, what should we be reading? So I stole Dan's Wanna Read for 2018. So I grabbed What Doesn't Kill You by Amy Hicks. It comes out in early January from Midnight Inc. Books. Uh, this is her debut novel, and she's writing about a former cop named Willa Pennington, and she's working to get her PI license. So one day, her parents' neighbors ask her to go help uh, their daughter move out of her abusive boyfriend's house, and Willa agrees. She shows up. Girlfriend is missing in action, and the boyfriend is found dead in the house with two uh, shotgun wounds. So... She immediately jumps in and tries to help figure out where the boyfriend is and who committed the murder. Amy Hicks has laid out a very wonderful, very tight story. There are no wasted scenes in this. Everything moves the plot forward. Um, and for a debut novelist, she's done a really good job showing a lot of restraint. Sometimes you read a debut novel from an author and they just like, all of the plot goes on the page in the first two chapters. Here, she does a really good job of teasing out the plot. Once you get in, she adds a little bit more, one more layer, one more layer, one more layer. And there are some things that she writes at the beginning of this book that then play into the end that you wouldn't have ever thought that they were tied together. And that is high praise. That's exactly what I look for in a book, Kate, is what you described, is not, no wasted scenes, no information dumps. That kind of stuff is the fastest thing to get me to put a book down. Yeah, there isn't that like one paragraph of, and here is all of the exposition that you need to know. She does a really good good job pacing it all out. All right. All I have to say is, Kate Melman, stop taking my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so for my piece, I use comics and, and graphic novels as, as palate cleansers. So um, I'm talking today about The Vision, Volume 1. Little Worse Than a Man by Tom King, who's currently writing Batman, and Gabriel Walta on art. This is the miniseries that won the 2017 uh, Eisner Award for Best Limited Series in Comics. The Eisners are kind of the Academy Awards of comic books. I'm just going to drop a little comic knowledge. Will Eisner, Dan, take that. Whoa. This is my shocked face. He's stunned into silence. Shocked faces <laughs> don't work on a podcast, Dan. Just so you know. I'm like an iguana in a tree on that one. <laughs> um, so... A lot of folks know the Vision from uh, the Marvel movies. Uh, he's an Avenger, basically the Pinocchio syndrome, the robot that wants to be a man. So it's kind of like Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek Next Generation. So Tom King- Commander Picard, I'm gonna drop some Star Trek now. Is that is that right? Is that Next Next Generation is Picard. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Whew, yeah, two. 
let's hang out more, Beatner. <laughs> Go to the comic shop. Um, so basically, Tom King takes this just a super advanced robot and and puts him through a ringer, and he takes his set his search for humanity one step further. He has the vision create his own family. He builds his own wife, his own son, and his own daughter. The vision trades in his superhero costume for a shirt and tie. Um, and he basically kisses his robot wife as he leaves to go to work every day. And man, have I been there? I mean, it's it's the <laughs> ultra 1950s repressed suburban dream where we're going to be real even if it kills us. Then uh, the vision's wife gets embroiled in a murder mystery that she's keeping secret from everybody else. It's almost a, a double indemnities type vibe. Um, and I know that I tossed out a cinematic reference for Beatner. You had me at robot murder mystery, so I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> this is an incredible read, and I re recommend it highly. Dan, it seems like you really related to the robotness of these characters. How did it make you feel about your own robotness? I mean, for a robot that gets up every morning and puts on a shirt and tie, I mean, I related completely. You know, what I, about I, kissing your robot wife goodbye? She's out of the house by five in the morning every day. That's a dedicated robot wife right there. Well, she doesn't sleep. She's a robot. I, I don't need to sleep. That's right. Wait, are we robots? I don't know, but I need to be rebooted. Oh, this is the moment, the awakening moment right now. <laughs> They've become sentient. I'm so glad we sent you that comic book. The truth had to come out. <laughs> well, we hope you guys uh, managed to stay warm for the rest of uh, the long, long winter that's in, in store for you guys. Well, I don't feel like the robots can get cold, Eric. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So I hope you guys freeze to death or not. Hey! hey. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, when the uprising happens, you're first to go down. We'll get you with our robot claws. Maybe I'm a robot too. Why was I programmed to feel pain? <laughs> hey, Steve, do you remember that special anticipation that came with your debut novel? I remember being at BoucherCon in North Carolina when I got the first copies of Bad Citizen Corporations in my hand, and Joe Clifford walked up and said, it's a little disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> was he right? Was it a little bit of a letdown? It was a different experience than I had anticipated. Well, we have a debut author on next, and we could only have wished for the attention that her first novel is getting. CJ Tudor is the author of The Chalk Man, one of the most highly anticipated novels of the new year. She joined us from her home in England, and surprisingly, we got the time zone math right on the first try. That's good for us. We've turned over a new leaf in our second year. It's not me who keeps getting it wrong, Eric. This book is getting tremendous advanced buzz. Everyone is talking about it. I just want to know, like, how does it feel to have all this advanced praise of your book we don't want to freak you out or anything <laughs> there's a lot of pressure it's kind of terrifying um to be honest i don't think you can really think about it too much it's nice but it's terrifying and i think you're always aware at the back of your mind that the more buzz or advanced word of, of a book you get the more likely you're going to get people who want to kind of tear it down um the more hype you get there's that danger with that as well so i think i kind of just put it out of my head a bit i hope it does well i hope a few more people than my mum buy a copy um and i think that's all you can wish for really uh, it, it's lovely but I, I, I yeah i try not to dwell on it really i think you've just got to put that to one side very mature of you <laughs> well i am quite old <laughs> <laughs> so 
Nostalgia is very strong in your book. And, you know, Eric and I remember being that age and riding around with our friends. Uh, it seems like the experience wasn't much different in the UK than in America. Why did you choose that time period to write about? Well, because, well, obviously we're probably a similar age, aren't we? Because I was around, I was a preteen in sort of the mid-1980s. And so, yeah, I think small towns in particular, actually, um, aren't that dissimilar. And I was born in a small town in the south of England. And so a lot of it is stuff me and my friends used to do, to go and ride around on our bikes and hang out at the park and the shops. And there were some woods close by. And we used to go and hang around there and build dens and, and you know, take our packed lunches and spend the afternoon in the woods. I suppose we used we were in a way like kids do hoping for something scary or interesting to happen so we'd make up all these stories and adventures and things so it kind of is very much yeah based on sort of me and me and my friends in a way we were actually all girls but we were all real tomboys we had no interest in you know makeup and nails or any of that we were much happier in the woods playing star wars or something like that we were kind of girl geeks <laughs> So tell us, uh, what is some of the mischief that you got up to? Did you, I mean, maybe, well, I should preface this, maybe that does not involve finding a dead body like happened in the book, but... Uh... I remember, we, we, like we said, we were all quite obsessed with, we used to read things like Stephen King, and we were all quite into sort of um, creepy dark stuff, I think. I do remember once there was this playground that we used to call the kind of the weird playground, a bit like in the book. It was the one that... It, it was just a playground, but it was the one you didn't tend to go to as much because I don't know. There's, sometimes there'd be bigger kids hanging out there and there was only an alleyway to get there. So you, you kind of didn't want to get stuck there where you couldn't escape. And it used to back onto this like, it must have been someone's old garden. It was really overgrown. And they had what we used to call the old air raid shelter. It was like a big Anderson steel hut thing. And it was just really weird and creepy inside because it had all these old newspapers dating back to the 1940s. And it had this really old Silver Cross pram that we convinced ourselves had what looked like bullet holes in. And this was the story we told ourselves. It probably wasn't, but we sort of made up this sort of story about this place and it became this really creepy sort of sort of thing in our heads. Sounds like you've been a storyteller your whole life. <laughs> Let's fast forward to present day. Do you yes. let your own child run around unsupervised like we all used to? <laughs> well, she's four at the moment. No, I don't think I would. You, you don't know, do you? I think, you know, it sounds like I sound very old saying that, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't want her to go too far away unsupervised until she's at least at least 30 or 40, I think, to be honest. I think that's, <laughs> she's probably safe then. Yeah, I do that with my daughters. I, I, I look back at the stuff that we used to do as kids in the 80s, and I think there's no way I would let my girls do that. <laughs> just, just wave as you're going out the door and be like, all right, I'll be back by dinner. Maybe, it, maybe yeah. not. See you at tea time. <laughs> My parents didn't let me do that. They insisted. They would be literally pushing me out the door at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they'd be like, see you at lunch. <laughs> yeah. Go play, do something, whatever. <laughs> well, now, despite the, the buzz around your debut novel, there are always backstories and histories of the long road to getting published. So should people consider you an overnight success? <laughs> I don't think there's any such thing. It's, I love it when they say, yeah, when you say debut novel. And um, no, I mean, I, oh God, I've been writing for well over 10, seriously, seriously trying to write a book probably for easily over 10 years. I didn't, I, I didn't knuckle down to it, to be fair, till my mid thirties. And I think in my naivety probably thought I'll write a book and it'll be brilliant and it'll be published and yay, it'll take a year or so. And no, that didn't happen. So there were a lot of failed projects, half finished books. Um, and I think I'd, I'd really got to the stage actually before I wrote the chalk mum, I thought, well, you know, maybe it's just not going to happen. 
And then fortunately, the idea for the chalk man came about. But, but even then, you don't know when you put an idea and you write something whether anybody's going to like it. So, yeah, so this, it's been quite a long road. I took the long road, but in a way, it's quite nice. I think I appreciate it even more at the moment. You said you wanted to make the story in the chalk man creepy. What creeps yes. you out? Lots of things, actually. I still get creeped out if I go into my daughter's room. And she's got lots of dolls, obviously, and toys. Toys and dolls creep me out. Even when I was a kid, I used to be really scared of a couple of teddy bears I had with these glass eyes. Hated them. You'd have to turn them right away all the time. I couldn't stand them. And so if I go into my daughter's room, I'm, I'm 46. She got these dolls. I'll be, like, convinced if I turn away, the dolls are moving. They're looking at me. It's imagination, isn't it? Perhaps that's what it is. When you write, you're always imagining weird things or the worst case scenario what if this happened and it's a yeah, blessing and a curse i guess well i i want to thank you for vindicating me because eric i've told you for a long time now that my teddy bear phobia was not weird <laughs> no I, I just thought it was weird that you had so many teddy bears still <laughs> well it, but it's immersion therapy right so i'm afraid of teddy bears so i have to have 40 or 50 around me at, at almost all times <laughs> How do you plan to celebrate the release of the book? Um, by getting drunk, probably. I mean, this, this is this is generally my go-to. <laughs> I mean, not straight away, not not you know, not at nine in the morning or anything. But um, and yeah, the rest of them, I mean, we'll be trying to get people to probably send me photos of it in shops if they can, because in the UK I plan to go around with my phone and take some really sad selfies in every single shop I can find it. Basically, obviously, I can't kind of just travel over there for the day and stuff to do that. So I'll be asking people probably via Twitter if they get a chance if they see it in a shop to please send me a photo, which will be really exciting. Well, our Writer Types listeners, uh, you have your assignment. Uh, go to your local bookshop, snap a picture of it, and uh, send it to CJ Tudor uh, on Twitter, and uh, yes, she, you'll be giddy over the moon to see it all around the world. I will be thrilled, absolutely thrilled. I will go to every bookstore that I can and take a <laughs> selfie of me with a teddy bear to share with you, with Thank those, you. those glass you. eyes staring at you. <laughs> So far, what has been your favorite thing about being a debut author? The best thing is probably signing the publishing deals have enabled me to write full time. And that's a huge privilege. I was working as a, a dog walker when I was writing The Chalk Man. So that, the luxury of being able to kind of write, go to a coffee shop and sit in the coffee shop and write is, is just amazing. It's a huge privilege. And it's been fantastic. There's, I haven't, haven't had any downsides yet. They, they may, may be to come, but, but so far I'm just enjoying the experience. Again, I think I waited a long time for it, so. So the highlight is, I thought you were gonna say being on writer types, but I guess maybe I was. Oh, sorry, yeah, if, if you wanna cut that, the, high, the, the highlight is absolutely being on writer types. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> you can cut that in, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> Eric, after talking to CJ, I think I'm gonna switch from the Cabbage Patch murders to the Teddy Bear murders. <laughs> Well, as long as we're talking to debut authors, we asked a trio of writers with debut novels out this year to take part in our Unpanel. And the Unpanel is where we ask writers one question and get a variety of answers. And for these new authors, we wanted to know what is the most exciting thing about having their debut coming out soon. Hi, this is Amy Hicks, author of the newly released novel, What Doesn't Kill You from Midnight Inc. The most exciting thing about being a debut author has to be getting to see my book in a library or libraries. I loved the library as a kid, still love it as an adult. Spent a lot of time there as a kid, sitting on the floor, 
reading as many books as I could, carrying stacks of them home, and getting to be a part of a library system is an incredible honor and really delightful to know that people can find my book there. I have this ritual that when I would go into the libraries and bookstores, I would find the spot in the mystery section where my book would go and I would just put my hand there for a minute to just kind of feel what it would feel like. I haven't seen it in the library yet or even in a bookstore yet, but I do have a picture from a library in Illinois. My friend is a librarian there and she took the picture on release day and sent it to me. So that's definitely the most exciting part for me. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Michael Poole. I am the author of the forthcoming novel, Texas Two-Step, which will be released by Down and Out Books April 2nd. For me, the most exciting part of having a debut novel come out is getting to see the final finished product. Not only the cover, but also, you know, the edits, as well as, you know, getting to hold that book in my hand and have friends read the book and family read the book and see what they think about it. I think it's a really fun crime story. Um, There's a lot of different players in the story. All of them sort of have their own motivations, and they're all dancing around each other and trying to get what they want out of the conflict. So I really enjoyed writing it. I hope that people enjoy reading it, and uh, I hope to build off of, you know, maybe what I do well in the book with more books as well as learn from the mistakes that I've made and, you know, improve in future books. So uh, Texas Two-Step, check it out. It drops April 2nd from Down and Out Books. Thanks, guys. This is Tess Makovesky, author of the upcoming comedy noir novel, Gravy Train. I'm really excited about the book for lots of reasons, having my name on the cover of a full-length novel for the first time, but most of all I'm looking forward to shining a light, however murky, on England's second city, Birmingham. For some reason this has a really bad reputation as a dull place full of 1960s concrete, but anyone who's read my novella, Raise the Blade, will already know this isn't the full picture. Once again with Gravy Train I've used locations around the city which help to show that it's a vibrant place, stuffed full of history and heritage. Most of all it's famous for having more miles of canal than Venice. Gravy Train uses those canals to full advantage as a bunch of losers and criminals chase a bag of money around the back streets and suburbs towards a showdown on the banks of Gas Street Canal Basin. But if you want to know what happens at each location, you'll need to read the book. It's due out, from all due respect, in November this year. Well, I'm excited for all three of those debut authors. And Steve, I'm also excited for you because you have a new book, Hang Time, which is the conclusion of your Greg Salem trilogy. So congratulations on that. Thanks a lot, Eric. I'm, I'm really excited to have this one come out in the world and, and see what people think of it. And congratulations to you on the third book in your trilogy, which is called The Devil at Your Door. Thank you. It's been uh, a long, very rocky road to get these three books out and, and to finish this story. It's both nice to have it wrapped up uh, and yet a little bit sad to say goodbye to these characters. I don't know. I'm sure you probably felt the same way. It, it was difficult, and I've definitely toyed with the idea of like, does it have to come to an end? Um, but uh, I promised it was a trilogy, and that's where we're going to stop for now. How about with you? I am excited for people who who have stuck with this series since the first book, The Devil Doesn't Want Me. Uh, and I certainly hope that I've done the conclusion 
justice for these characters. And uh, uh, again, I, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. It's like you you set up this world and then you hope that when people get to the end of it, if they if they've taken the time to follow you all the way to the end, that they don't read that last page and then go, oh, dang it, you didn't stick the landing. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the most distinctive voices in crime fiction in recent years is Frank Bill. Frank's novel, Donnybrook, garnered rave reviews and has just been adapted to a film due out next year. His follow-up, The Savage, is out now, and it continues his unflinching depiction of a world gone wrong. So, Frank, uh, welcome to the show. Now, we had to reschedule this interview because the first date we tried, you were out busy running a 50K foot race. Our first question, of course, is what the hell is wrong with you? Uh, it's just one of those things, man. Like It's kind of like riding. I like to push myself. So I enjoy trail running and I uh, strength train two or three days a week, too. So uh, it's just one of those things I enjoy doing, you know. Just, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> so just trying to keep myself in shape. I like a challenge, man, you know. Well, I was going to ask, you know, I don't think I've run 50K in my in my entire life, but I do like to ride my mountain bike when I'm sure. trying to work through a story idea or right. I've come to a roadblock. When you're running a 50K, do you just think of a whole book and then just go home and write it out? No, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, the running does help with stuff like that. I mean, working out in general, you know, just working through a plot summary, story ideas, that kind of stuff. It does help. Uh, relieve a lot of the stress of everything else so you can kind of focus on one thing yeah of course that day by mile 21 i got leg cramps real bad and the only thing i was thinking was like what the fuck man this is bullshit <laughs> but i made it through <laughs> well you're clearly a glutton for punishment because you also write out your first drafts longhand uh, does that let uh, you take more time to craft sentences uh, nah, I actually don't really write them out longhand i keep i keep a journal with most of my stuff in it and when i go back and uh it's kind of like I'm editing as I'm pulling from my notebook or my journal. I'm kind of editing in my head as I write it back down. But yeah, I do back and forth all the time. So yeah, I don't actually get an entire draft long. I, be, I guess you could go through all my journals because it would probably take four or five journals to, to read an actual book, but it probably make any fucking sense. <laughs> <laughs> the worlds that, that you've created in your novels, Donnie Brook, and then this new novel, The Savage, are broken to say the least. Do you think, are you a pessimist about the human race? No, uh, you know, a lot of people was asked that. I think a lot of it has to do with just growing up on a farm. My grandparents had a farm in a rural area and uh, you're constantly surrounded by tragedy. But to me, it was just everyday life. You know, I grew up with stories that some people were like, oh man, that's horrible. I'm like, well, no, not really. It's just, you know, it's people struggling. There's, there's violence. There's uh, dealing with things within the family, you know, uh, abuse between uh, spouses, that kind of stuff, verbal and physical, uh, things my mother or father grew up with, man, my dad being in this, uh, the Vietnam War, stores my grandparents, that kind of stuff. And it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem violent to me. It just seems like everyday life. Human nature at some point that everyone is just turns into a savage, I guess. Eventually. Yeah. I think it's all, it's human nature. Yeah. You recently got to witness firsthand your first novel, Donnybrook being adapted to film. Uh, what was that like being on set? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, I have a whole new uh, understanding for filmmaking anyway. It, it was really uh, interesting to see. Uh, they did a really good job, like with Frank Grillo being Angus. I thought that was a, a great, great cast pick. Uh, but uh, then the uh, Jarhead Earl went through several different people. What, what I come to realize is 
if you see an actor you think could play a role, there's about 10 other people that could play it all. So you just don't realize how, how much talent in Hollywood and how busy everybody is, you know? So it was always, this person's not going to work. We've got another person, but it, it was kind of like, you're going through the, the shuffle. And it's like, fuck up. They're kind of running out of people, <laughs> <laughs> but from watching it, I think everybody nailed their roles. You know, uh, Jamie Bell was fucking outstanding. Uh, yeah, they pretty much nailed the characters from the book. Yeah, they did a really great job as far as setting up uh, areas for the sets and stuff. I mean, even the bar they picked, the real, real little dive shithole of a bar. I mean, it was just, you know, it was in this small town. That's just where everybody in the town, the town drunks went there, you know, and I got to be an extra in the one scene. I'm at, my wife and I are sitting at the bar and uh, I looked at my wife. I said, man, you smell that? She's like, yeah, I think it's those closed cigarettes. I said, no, somebody's really pissed all over this bar like several times. I said, it's like <laughs> stuck. I'm like, man, they nailed this. This is great. This is Poe. This is Poe's place, man. This is awesome. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, it, it brought out pretty much what was in the book. That's great. That's so many people are uh, disappointed with their adaptations. That's, that's great that, that you're pleased. Well, it hasn't been released yet. Well, <laughs> I don't know what the director's cut and all that'll look like, but yeah, I mean, everything I saw looked really, really good. Yeah. There's still time for them to fuck it up is what you're saying. There's always time. <laughs> Your book has been optioned. It has now been shot. You were on set. You were treated by, like a celebrity by the cast and crew. Oh, you got to be an extra. Yeah. So the question I guess I want to ask is, have you gone Hollywood on us? No, no, I haven't gone Hollywood. <laughs> I still work a day job and I'm still writing another book and some other stuff. So yeah, yeah I'm still the same guy. <laughs> so it's it's not all limos and pool parties at Leo DiCaprio's mansion for you? No, no, nothing like that. You know, and even if it was, even if I was a millionaire, I'd probably still live in the same house, drive the same car and probably, probably still work a day job. I gotta stay grounded somehow, you know. Well, okay, Steve, that wraps up one year and one episode. And I'm continually amazed at the caliber of guests that we managed to get and the things we learn each episode. Like Nick Petrie, who taught us that it's good to live in California in the wintertime. And Alifair Burke, who taught us to always put your phone on mute when doing an interview. And CJ Tudor, who taught us to be afraid of teddy bears. Very, very afraid. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. And you can find out more about Steve's books at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.